Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about digital production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we'll talk about what we want to spend a little bit more time on. <laughs> so we're going to be talking about uh, computer graphics. So so what um, what do we want to cover? What do we want to talk about? So if you've got ideas, it doesn't have to be questions. You can jump into Makana and ask those and put those in. So if you have suggestions for things you'd like to know, whether it's 2D graphics, photogrammetry, 3D graphics, um, you know, compositing, motion graphics, all those things are things that we cover on Tuesdays. And, we, and if you have ideas of what you'd like to see, then go ahead and start throwing those into Makana. Otherwise, go ahead and throw in questions for the first hour. And uh, Keely, what do we have? We're kicking it off with Paul Wall, who's in Austin, Texas. How does the Asus ProArt PA32 UCG monitor deliver stunning HDR performance with 1600 nits peak brightness and 120 hertz refresh rate? I'll go with Courtney. Well, it does it by having a whole bunch of mini LEDs behind that little 32-inch panel that will blind you and let you never be able to see your monitor again at... at uh, 1,600 nits, if you're sitting that close to it, can be quite uh, painful. Uh, and it's only slightly more painful than your uh, the pain of paying $3,500 for a computer monitor. Go ahead, Jason. Yeah, I'll tell you how. Um, 3,000 plus price tag, um, only 4K resolution, spread out at 32 inches, and um, a PPI that's that's lower than Retina, and um, and then just variable refresh rate, which is actually part of the spec. So um, I'm not impressed. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, I think a lot of times. I mean, I've seen a lot of things at a variety of nits, um, sixteen hundred nits, two thousand nits, four thousand nits. In fact, uh, there is a monitor. Well, it's not really a monitor, but there's a thirty thousand nit display you know, that sits inside of a building that I've worked in in the past, and um, and so. The interesting thing is, is that when we think about nits, if you're we, one of the things we were we were looking at samples that were done in, uh, you know, that if you're in a like a, a white wall in an alley, they they they, they looked at that and it, you know during you know on a day, but it was in the shade, it was nine thousand nits. <laughs> so so we're used to looking at a lot of nits as they are. It's really the around the the surrounding area, the overall ambient light, and how that affects you know where our irises are. That's the real issue. Um, that we have to be careful of is is looking at a really high knit with a very you know very dark area is is not great because your irises will open up and your uh, and it doesn't really manage that so so those are the things to think about there um, but uh, yeah it's interesting uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff bouncing around that is you know 1600 nits is becoming kind of state you know like that's what you expect from a relatively something that says HDR I mean they started calling that at 600 nits um, which most of us don't consider really HDR. <laughs> so, so anyway, so sixteen hundred nits is a is a number that's becoming more accepted in that area, and usually that's the peak, not the the regular. Uh, you know what you're seeing. You know when something's sixteen hundred nits, it means the highlights are going to be sixteen hundred nits, but a lot of things are going to sit at you know six hundred, eight hundred, a thousand nits. Um, next question. It's from Andy Carluccio in San Francisco, California. What's Universe showing at ProLight and Sound at the Future Walk? Uh, Universe has definitely announced a new controller um, for Zoom, and it looks pretty impressive. And I still don't have all the information for it. <laughs> so basically, um, you know, it is—it's uh, an appliance, though that that Universe is putting out. So what we'll do is we'll do a little research. We're going to see if we can bring them in. ProLight, Pro, um, uh, ProLight and Sound uh, is in Germany, and it—it's it, 
nine hours ahead of us, but we're going to see if we can get Andy and some of the crew to join us uh, tomorrow, tomorrow morning, probably top of the hour. So, um, so stay tuned for that, and we'll talk more about it in detail. Uh, next question. It's Gordon Lake from Los Angeles, California. Would the Blackmagic 2100 IP converters be a more cost-effective solution instead of fiber for getting cameras to the switcher? With two converters and a 300-foot Cat7 cable between them, you get three inputs and three outputs for under $1,500. Go ahead, Courtney. Hey, maybe, but you know, at 300 feet, uh, you probably might as well use uh, standard coax SDI, RG6 or something, some high-quality that can carry, and it depends on what resolution you're trying to send back from those cameras, if you're sending 4K or not. If you're not sending 4K, then coax is the way to go. Go ahead, Jason. Yes, that is cheaper than fiber, and fiber is only getting warmed up at 300 feet. So, um, you know, it's not quite the same thing. Yeah, I have to admit, we I don't use SDI over 150 feet. <laughs> so, so typically, you know, I, I switch over 200 feet in the very outer edge. Um, it could be, it could be, but at 300 feet, um, you know, I, I, you know, for me, I would mostly switch to fiber because that's what I know the best. And I've got lots of converters already as a cost effective way to do it. Three in three out, you know, at that, at that, um, distance is actually pretty good. Um, and I think that the, the real advantage of 2110 is not necessarily long runs. Um, because the other thing to look at is 2110 across that run, even on a cat seven, 300 feet maybe on the outer edge of that as well. So we want to be kind of careful of that. What really is the advantage of 2110 is routing. You know, being able to more seamlessly route between things. Um, I wouldn't necessarily use it as a long-run solution. Uh, next question. Our next question comes from Liberty White, who's in Atlanta, Georgia. Yesterday, Grant man mentioned Sage during the show. I received two Sage emails in the past 24 hours. I know our devices are always listening, but how can one prevent this from happening? The the reality is it probably wasn't connected. Um, Sage is doing a really big event, which is why we were talking about it, which is also why they're sending emails out. <laughs> so, so they're, you know, so the thing is, is that, you know, the, the timing was we were talking about something. I don't think that there was any, you know, the reality is, is that they don't have to listen to you to figure out what's going on. So a lot of times you'll go, well, I have a conversation with, uh, I had a conversation with a friend that, um, about something and then they, and then suddenly it popped up. Now, what is more likely happening, which could be a little scarier, is that the phones know that they're together. So the phones know that the two the two of you were standing next to each other for X amount of time and your friend was searching about a bunch of things. That's why it came up in the conversation. And then it, it can derive that, well, you might have talked about that, so I'm going to tell you something. But that's a much more likely thing than 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 it actually um, passing audio information around because in the, the reality is in many states that's illegal. So so the thing is, is that you can't actually legally just grab onto audio, but you can grab onto metadata. And so metadata tends to be more of if you searched it, if you searched, now, if you searched Sage, um, you know, while we were doing the show, then it's more likely to, um, you know, or brought it up or, or whatever. Now, the other thing is, is that you are potentially connected with metadata to all of us. So if we all search Sage while we were talking about it, it may, may, it may, it may be able to build that graph. So there's a bunch of things that are related to that. It's probably the chances of it being actually listening to you is not not zero, but very, very close to it. <laughs> like, like you know, as almost as close as you can be without being zero. Um, mostly because they don't need it, and and the, the reality is, audio is not super efficient um, for to, to process, whereas metadata is super efficient. And there's, you know, they can do, derive an enormous amount of information around uh, choices um, related to that. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I sorry I missed yesterday. Uh, 
I'm going to have to ask here. I was just about to search for what is Sage, and I stopped myself because I didn't want to get the emails. What is Sage? Sage, sage is uh, it's uh, uh, the um, uh, events by Sage, or I think it's, it's events by Sage, uh, and it's this is uh, Blue Melnick uh, and his wife's uh, event company. So they uh, Obvio is what they built with Grant, and and we talked a little bit about it because it was being used in Tony Robbins event yesterday so the big event yesterday was um uh that's but that's what that uh we, we we discussed it a little bit yesterday so that but i don't think again i wouldn't worry too much about it again it's there's a there are organizations that can listen to your audio but it's probably not connected to sage <laughs> those organizations and so so well, I the nsa doesn't send out ads either yeah, you, know. Know, you know exactly <laughs> they're like they're like let's send some ads out about a, about an event company but not very many organizations can get a hold of that information um without you know fisa you know so 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 anyway um uh, anyway so I, I think that um i think that you're probably okay but i do think what happens really is it looks at at the it looks at the relationship what what are systems are really good at is looking at the relationship between people so if a if it if it's built relationships because you've been on the show a bunch with all of us and we all did searches it, it, you know it, it can definitely affect the graph of making decisions about oh well you may have been in that conversation so um so those are the kind of things they can figure out but listening to you is probably not one of them um it's again it's against the law in most most states uh next question Paula Walhus is back from Austin, Texas. Did you watch the Art of Living first of its kind virtual live event? It was six hours and still up on YouTube. Was it the biggest Zoom and YouTube event ever? Go ahead, John. I don't know if it was the first of 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 its kind. I mean, we we had no visibility into Zoom. We watched for I don't know half an hour or so, and they had about four hundred thousand people on YouTube. No way to tell what what the audience size was on Zoom because you had to pay to be a VIP on Zoom, but it looked very much like a Tony Robbins production. A, a little a little too much, actually. They had fake crowd noise and fireworks and all kinds of stuff behind the speakers. So I, I don't know, not my cup of tea. Go ahead, uh, Jeffrey. Yeah, I think the biggest event actually happened in 2020, something with uh, some rabbi. I, I don't know all the details on that, but uh, it was a, uh, it, it, that, that hit about 100,000 on Zoom and YouTube. And then, of course, you have that whole uh, weighing between who's on Zoom, who's on YouTube type thing. Does that count as part of the numbers? Or because we, like, like Prado said, we watched it for about 30 minutes and then felt too evangelistic. So it just kind of left from there. Uh, so where, where, where do you gauge the numbers from? Yeah. And yeah. And I think that, it, you know, in the, in the, I, you know, it's hard to tell what the biggest Zoom and, and YouTube event is. As, as said, I don't know. I don't know which ones were which. Um, as far as a YouTube event, it probably doesn't even show up in the top ten thousand. Like it's not. You know, like there's the the largest Zoom event. I think is still the Stratus jump, um, and so that that was the the Red Bull jump from one hundred and twenty some thousand feet, um, and that. I think that that was at eight million viewer, you know, concurrent viewers or something like that. And so that's the that's still the high watermark on YouTube. Um, there's other live streams that are that that I've worked on that are considerably more viewers <laughs> than that concurrent. Um, so so it's not those numbers are not you know inc you know they're they're big for an event and and if in a, an event that includes Zoom, but they're from a you just want to kind of keep it in track that the from a event perspective we're still just getting started. Um, next question. 
Our next question comes from Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado. Do you know a way to start YouTube videos at Ado, which is sometimes two or three minutes in? Why do we mod model modern video creation after 1950s commercial TV? I go ahead, Keely. Yeah, this is a great point because of all the training and coaching that I've been getting as a live streamer, a video producer, is stop with the introductions, get right into the content. And personally, if I hear, so let's dive in one more time on any of the videos I watch, I'm probably going to do some serious violence to myself. We do need to get into a new formula and a new pattern. And it's just a matter of what we're comfortable with. We think that we need to mimic what we've learned from all that time, but it's a new it's a new venue. It's a new method to delivering information. And we, as people who are on YouTube, need to actually dive right in. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Sorry, I hit the wrong button there. Uh, so I basically, uh, with to do this, you can't do this in YouTube uh, natively, but if you want to go on a website, uh, all you have to do is hit the share button and then go down and find the time marker that uh, that you would start at. And then you can send that to Twitter, you can send that to websites and, and all that other thing. Mm -hmm. The other thing is within YouTube, you can set chapter markers. So you can have an intro and then you have, here's the content. And then they just have to scroll down a little bit on there. I have actually talked to YouTube several times about possibly making some sort of pass through. So, cause sometimes you need it. Sometimes you need that intro. And uh, for a lot of intros that, that happen on YouTube, there's a lot of people that realize, okay, the, this creator creates uh, a 30-second intro, which is nice, but I always want to skip it. And it would be nice to say, okay, every time you play this video, skip that intro. Uh, but I agree with Keely. I've stopped doing a lot of my intros. And at the most, my intros are like one to two seconds in any of my videos. Hey, go ahead, Courtney. Well, what I do is I have a a uh, player called Smart Tube Next, which is uh, it's a side loadable player. If you have any anything that runs uh, Android TV, like on my TV set, uh, or a Fire TV, or a uh, Google uh, Chromecast uh, as your player, you can sideload this application, and it skips over automatically. Uh, you you can set it. To it has whole classes of stuff it'll skip. It'll it it never plays commercials. There's no in rolls, there's no pre rolls, there's no mid rolls, there's no post rolls. It it will automatically skip over uh, a standard opening right to the very first frame of the content. Uh, it'll skip over self promotion in the middle of a YouTube video. It'll skip over all automatically. So look for Smart Tube next, and if you have something that will play it, it won't. Uh, Apple players, I don't think it will work on, but if you use a, a Fire TV or a uh, Android TV of some sort, uh, you can sideload it and watch all your YouTube videos without any commercial interruptions or any self-promotions or any regular opens. Yeah, I, we have an intro for this show, but I, I try to keep it to about between 30 seconds and a minute. And I look at it as as an overall percentage of the entire show. So in, in our show is two hours long. So I feel like I, I can buy a minute um, to tell you why you're here. And it also is more of a pattern for us just to get into the into the zone because it's a live show. Um, I have thought about cutting that completely out in the post, um, you know, out of the past the countdown clock and felt like it would feel a little odd just to jump straight in if you've never seen it before. So, so I, you know, we try to keep it really short. But when it comes to short videos, if you're doing a five-minute video or eight-minute video, 
you know, as everybody else said, the whole intro thing is over. Like you, you gotta, you know, if you're doing eight, an eight minute video, you have to not do anything else. And one of the other things we talk a lot about is stacking the, stacking the video. So one of the things that, it ha, you know, people do to try to hang on and get longer view times is to put the interesting things at the end. And what a lot of us are starting to talk about as we build some content, and I build them for other other clients. <laughs> I, I, so eventually, I'll build it for us, but I'm building so much for other clients that I don't get time to to actually do it here. Um, but one of the things that that when you stack it, we're basically no intro, and we put all the things that you want and really line up with whatever we told you we were going to show you in the first 90 seconds. So it is dense in that first 90 seconds. Then we keep going. But we actually make it less and less important and more detailed, not import, less important, but like, let me show you how this works. And then let me show you why this works. And here's a couple, a little bit more information if you're really into it. And so that tail is for people who basically you're giving the person who shows up at the video immediately what they wanted. So they get instant gratification. They're more likely to respond to you later, you know, to come back to your video later. And they get the value out of your video in the first very, very short period of time. Then what we do is we then start stacking the, the and a lot of this has to do with where you put commercials and so on and so forth. I don't believe, I don't do commercials, so I don't care. Um, but the, you know, so most of the stuff that I build are for people who are brands who don't want to, they don't care. They don't, they're not running an ad in it. So, so they, um, so the, the, the issue is you put all the value right in that first 60 to 90 seconds. And then, but then you keep on adding a little bit more as you go out. So that if you're really into it, you're getting even more value. And if you wait a longer, it still has to be great. Um, but the person who, whatever they saw it was going to do on the on the thumbnail and whatever they clicked on, they get in 60 to 90 seconds, you know, and then, but then you keep on giving them more value if they're willing to stay longer. And it gives you a sense of it and helps kind of build that in. And I think that that's probably, it feels like the future, you know, like of what we're doing. Um, and so it'll be, it'll, it, I don't know if it is or not, but it really does feel like it. It's a much more pleasurable thing to watch. You know, I can tell you that, you know, so, um, so, and, and the, again, I think that there's a mistake. I think the YouTubers who do really well are the ones that are really only thinking about the viewer. They're not trying to figure out where to put the ads. They're not trying to figure out the algorithm. They're not trying to figure out those things. They're trying to figure out how do I just build incredible content that keeps you, you know, held you know, into that, into that space. And those are the ones that are doing the best, you know, over time, you know, when you do hundreds and hundreds of videos, if you do anything to try to manipulate the, the viewer, I think it, it, it's not that it doesn't work, but I think it, 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 uh, it devalues your content and, and it's pretty comp, it's a pretty competitive space. <laughs> so that's the thing you have to watch. Uh, next question. It's Michael Hillman from Sierra Madre, California. Any recommendations for music playback software with playlists for live events that work with Companion? Go ahead, Jeffrey. Uh, VLC actually has a Companion plugin that you can set up and uh, and use from there. I've, I know many people that, uh, that run it that way. Uh, there are some other Companion apps, but I think you need to have some hardware or some software with that. Like for instance, if you're uh, if you're using VMix, uh, you can probably you can run a playlist in VMix, and then you can uh, just uh, set up Companion to uh, to activate those buttons as you go from there. But VLAN or VLC is the easiest. I think I said VLAN, so I mean VLC is the easiest out of all of them. Yeah, and things like QLab are are completely tied into to everything that's there, and you could definitely build a playlist there as well. I mean, there's definitely playlist. Um, programs and radio station programming things, but QLab would do it as well. Uh, next question. 
Our next question is from panelist Jeffrey Powers in Madison, Wisconsin. Have you tried any of the latest rotating panoramic tripod heads yet? Go ahead, Jeffrey. So on Friday, somebody asked that question uh, about these. And I haven't, to be honest, I haven't used them in a very long time. But then I went and bought one. This is uh, Soonfo, I think is the name of the company. Uh, and I've been really impressed with this. I'm going to set it up. Whoops, I'm going to set it up fairly quick so you can see what it is. So basically, it is 2.4 gigahertz. What is the remote? There it is, right there. Uh, 2.4 gigahertz, completely changeable. So if you you are uh, jumping on top of another wireless, you can uh, you can easily sw switch it out. The remotes have, uh, as you can see, a little LCD on there. I can change the speed of the uh, of the pan and the tilt. So if I go like, if I switch over here and I run it from here, as you can see, a nice little smooth left and right, up and down. And this is at speed four for the up and down and left and right is about five. I can go up to speed eight and as slow as one. So I can have a really slow pan and I can set an AB button. Uh, so it'll do its own pan from there. This also has a, AI ability to it, and you just basically have to hold up your hand to stop it, and then do the OK to start it. And it's a little jerky, so I probably wouldn't use this part of it. But for the most part, for anything that doesn't have a, let's do that really quick. Stop that. For anything that doesn't have a natural PTZ to it, uh, this is a, a good alternative. Although you'll probably have to have more than one remote to do anything like if I wanted to zoom this camera and I need the camera remote to do that. But if you have a DSLR, it does plug ins and there is a there is a camera uh, shutter button so you can take pictures as you go. Yeah, and one thing that you want to look at there is if, if it needs to sit on the nodal point or not. So if if the lens needs to sit on a nodal point, you'll build one that's a little bit more complicated and you probably wonder why you need a nodal point. A nodal point is the point at which on the lens, and usually there's a little mark on it, that there are a little ring that, that you see on a lot of lenses, and that is the nodal point, and sometimes it's further forward than you think. Um, at that nodal point, if you rotate it around that point, there won't be any parallax. And what that means is, is that you will be able to, if you're shooting a panorama that you want to stitch back later, um, there you, you, it's easier to line them all up again. So we use that a lot. Um, so a lot of those are kind of suspend the camera. So for instance, some of the ones that we've used in the past are Edelchrome. Uh, Edelchrome has a head plus, and then they have a head plus V2 Pro. And that V2 Pro has a, you'll see if you look at it, um, you'll see that it it has it, it suspends the camera and allows you to move the camera backwards so that you can get that nodal point right on that edge. And so those are things. Nodal Ninja is another one that's mechanical that we've used in the past. And these are for shooting, you know, still panoramas. Um, but a lot of them, you know, some of them have motorized systems that will allow you to shoot um, film systems as well. A lot of times we go a little bit, if we're doing panoramic, um, you know, we're using more controlled heads that, um, but the, um, but with these, these are designed for us to shoot these large panoramas and stitch them back together relatively painlessly. Um, next question. It's Douglas Carmichael asking, could you conceivably use Universe as the control hub for a residential media automation system? 100%. I think that's, I think that's part of their, their, their actual business model. So uh, you can absolutely do it. We've been looking at it for a couple of, I've, I've been looking at it for controlling my house, <laughs> but I haven't, haven't, you know, in my copious free time. But uh, yeah, you could absolutely have it run that. Uh, next question. We have Jack Cannon from Phoenix, Arizona. Any thoughts on the new DJI Mavic 3 Pro and Cine, which were just announced? Um, yeah, go ahead, Jason. 
Um, I've never seen a Mavic that costs $4,000. That was my immediate thought, but I am absolutely blown away by the flight time. 43 minutes is insane. Yeah, the, um, so this is, this was just, was it earlier today that was just, when he says just announced, I think it was like today it was announced. Like there was a, um, and, uh, what's interesting is, is that the, it says not available in my region or country. Yep. You <laughs> have to refresh the, the main page and then go back and you'll find it. Oh, is it, is it, uh, is it when you go directly to it? What did it the CDN is like slowly getting there. Oh, it's just slowly picking up speed. Yeah. I mean, they look amazing. And, and I, you know, it's, it's really, um, I think that we're, it's hard, you know, that everyone gets concerned about, you know, D, DJI and everything else, but wow, you know, it, they're, they're doing some pretty incredible, pretty incredible, uh, you know, 43 minutes. There's, there's actually the, the mini three has 51 minutes. Um, but really when you're starting to look at some of these, um, you know, uh, sensors and, you know, the, the, you know, what, what, what kind of video, I mean, I, I'm, I've been holding off waiting for a lot of these releases to try to figure out what my, I have a, the original Mavic. I bought the Mavic and used it a lot. And I'm trying to figure out when, when do I step back into it? And I have to admit, looking at the Inspire 3 was stunning. Now that's a $15,000 one, $16,000 one. I can't afford that. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I, I, I don't have any good reason for it, but, but I will say that, uh, um, all of these look look really good. I mean, the things that I'm looking for are typically ProRes HQ or above. Um, you know, I'm not, you know, and and then, you know, what I want to see is Super 35 or above. So the Mavic, I don't think necessarily does that. I think the Cine may, um, and I'm, I'm having trouble because it just came out today. We're kind of juggling around a little bit um, to find it, to, to um, you know, to find that one specifically. But the, uh, but I think that, oh, this is the Cine combo for the Mavic 3. Hold on, let me look at it here. Yeah, so it's still four thirds inch sensor. I probably wouldn't put five thousand dollars into a into a drone with a four with a four thirds sensor. I probably want to spend a little bit more to get myself to super thirty five. Um, you know, so I think that that's the only thing that I I would kind of lean into there. Um, isn't but, a f- sorry, interrupt. Isn't a four by three a full frame? Uh, it is not. So four thirds. You know, oh, so four it's, thirds of an inch, not a four by three. I was just looking yeah, at yeah. that recommendation. I mean, that spec. Yeah, and so yeah, so I think that I, I'm still, I would still be trying to get a little bit more out of it. Now, the reality is, is that you could probably, you, do you really need a short depth of field or anything else with a mat, with a, with a drone? So the four thirds at the resolution that it's, that it's running at is probably plenty, you know, for, for that type of thing. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a, um, uh, it's pretty, I mean, it's, these drones have, I mean, I, and it's got, I think it's built in. So now it has multiple cameras. And so you're able to do FPG. I, I know that with the other one, you're able to go into FPG um, uh, mode directly. So you're able to just drop, but you're looking at, you know, it's shooting 10 bit log. I uh, can do 4K 120. You'll notice that a lot of cameras are able to do 120. It's very odd. <laughs> so um, it does Apple ProRes. And I believe it does ProRes HQ. It does not do ProRes RAW. Something happened there with DJI. And I don't know what it was with Apple, but. A lot of things got dropped out. I don't know whether it was the, it was a thing with Apple or whether they just decided to only put RAW into the into the Inspire or something. Something happened. I think it really I, just has to do with the data rates. Um, trying to push that through a sensor and like you know keep it in the air for as long as you are. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, so it's it's but it's an, it's it's super impressive. Um, I'm going to buy something. Maybe it may end up being this. Um, but I'm but I'm trying to figure out what 
what to buy and what I can afford and everything else. But the, the drones have, have, the problem is the restrictions have got, never been worse <laughs> to, to fly a drone, but the drones themselves have, are just getting to be kind of amazing. Um, you can really get some incredible uh, shots with them. The, I think that the, un, what was the, the Traveler show? I can't think of it right now on Apple. And I'm pretty sure all those are drone shots. I don't think that they're shooting those with helicopters. Um, and so, um, and so I think that those, and so that kind of gives you a sense of, you know, how the drones are being used for a lot of these things. Um, and if you look at, I mean, definitely look at the demo for the Inspire because they showed some stuff where they're doing camera and these can't, what you would do in a crane, you know, with, with the drone. And it looked just amazing. This martial arts scene where the, the drone comes around and comes down and then pulls back out and then moves around. It does a lot of things that are all kind of pre-programmed and it's, it's amazing. So, um, yeah, we'll take a look at it. They look great as always, as, as what we would expect. It's a very mature product line at this point. So we're, there's no real surprises other than everything just keeps getting better. Next question. It's Junior Grant from Bronx, New York. Good day, all. What microphone paired with a MixPre 6.2 would you recommend if recording a room approximately 24 by 26 feet, a ceiling of 12 foot high, hosting an event with acoustic instruments and unmiked voices with an audience of about 60? microphone i mean i'd be really tempted to do microphones um you know like i don't know if i would i would have it be you know just one so i mean i think that you know, that's a big it's a big space i mean the you're, you're gonna have two things that are kind of going back and forth one is is that the um that you're gonna have a lot of uh reverb you know from the room itself um but then you'll be sucking up a lot of that with folks there um, you know, we, I'm going to, I'm going to jump out to, uh, the, um, <laughs> to our audience here, uh, and, and, uh, Mickey, uh, rec re recommends a, um, handheld mic that fits the vocal DPA for, for a 4018 or sure SM58 are good for general purpose. If the instrument is an acoustic guitar, go with an AK G414. And it is an, if it is a, um, if it is a guitar, a DI, um, the Sennheiser 416 and MKH 60 crowd room mic. If you want stereo crowd room, replace the DI with another 416 or 60. So those are the, I'm going to, that was, that was the easy answer because we didn't have the answer. <laughs> All right. Next, next question. This is Douglas Carmichael coming in with, would there be any mobile data plan that doesn't have a throttling limit? I'll go ahead, Jason. Mine is completely unthrottled, and it is because I have not changed it at all since 2002. So uh, pretty much not. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's really hard to get them now because especially these days, I get, I get, I get the warning at the end of every month of like, hey, you used up all your, your data and we're going to take it away. Um, the, the, the easiest way to do that is really try to use your Wi-Fi as often as possible. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Almost all cellular plans have all the unlimited cellular plans unlimited data uh, have a throttling point because they don't want you using it as your primary internet connection uh, all day streaming Netflix or you know, so on all day long because that would eat up all their cellular bandwidth so they don't want you hanging that up so once you get to a certain point of you know uh, gig, you know 300 gigabytes something like that they all have cutoff points where they slow you down uh, to prevent that from happening yeah, and we we used to do some streams for one of the cellular companies, and they I think that the stat was something like one percent of the of the of their users use up ninety percent of the bandwidth. <laughs> like this was years ago, but it was definitely like a very small percentage are really hitting the hitting you know hammering that top end. Um, so so that's the they don't they don't those folks don't matter to them that much. <laughs> so when you, if you're hitting the throttle, 
uh, you're probably in that top end where they see you more as a as a liability than a than than a valued customer. <laughs> so so uh, of of the usage. So that's part of the issue too. Uh, next question. Paul Walhus is back. Discuss AirTag placement in your bag, wallet, or car so it doesn't get spotted or stolen. I go ahead, Keely. So one thing that I've done, I travel sometimes with an Oru kayak. It's a folding kayak, uh, really fantastic device. And it's one of those things that I know could go wandering off somehow, even though it's very large. And so what I've done is I've put two air tags in it. I've put one that's really much hidden back into a far corner that you would have to unpack the whole thing and you'd have to set it up and then you'd have to go digging to find it. And then one that's very obvious. So what I'm hoping is that somebody who wanted to actually acquire themselves in a kayak would see that air tag and would ditch it and then leave the one that I've had hidden. And I do that on a few of my other bags as well. And yes, it's more expensive, but I think it's a pretty good trick for anything except the most professional of thieves. I had the wrong, I was in the wrong page. Go ahead, Jason. Um, I don't personally kind of engage in subterfuge where I'm placing uh, an air tag. My, um, every one of my Pelican cases has, um, has them mounted in a really nice place so that they're audible, but also, um, you know, can't get whacked off by the, um, you know, by, by an upset piece of a luggage cart. Um, I have one in the glove compartment of my car, mostly for my own edification and um, one of my backpack because uh, I frequently leave without it and then have to turn around at the end of the street. So there's that. Go ahead, Jeffrey. So yeah, for my travel, I have a, I have a travel key. I don't take my regular keys with me. And on my travel key, I have the AirTag. And th this is an interesting story because last week, Chris talked about how he had an AirTag uh, following him and couldn't figure out why. And then I realized what it was. And that it was uh, my AirTag was sitting in the luggage. And uh, Chris picked me up and we went to the Gene Lake bed to, uh, for uh, some of the rocket stuff. And, uh, and then, of course, I, I rode back with Jack. So my luggage and my phone were in two different places. And therefore, uh, Chris got the uh, notification that uh, there was an AirTag following him. With that said, that was basically buried almost in the middle of my luggage and a whole bunch of electronics around it. So uh, it really doesn't matter where you place it, uh, as long as you know you don't have maybe probably like an iron case around it or something like that, I probably wouldn't be able to get through. But as uh, Jason said, you'd want to have some place where you could hear it, uh, but you can also find it with your phone fairly easily. Good, Courtney. Yeah, if you just want to track it, you don't need to hear it. Uh, get you some uh, Gorilla Tape or something like, oops, sorry, uh, Gorilla Tape, something that you can uh, tape it to the inside uh, uh or the bottom or the side of your luggage, as long as your luggage is not metal, if it's canvas or plastic like a Pelican case. That way uh, it, it hides it. Don't use the silver type duct tape uh, because that has uh, aluminum coating in it and that might prevent it from getting out radio-wise. And it will, of course, impede you from hearing it, but it, you can still track it. Yeah, the the... The issue with the Apple trackers, you know, if you're really, for stuff that you really care about, I put a lot of Apple trackers. I have over 20 of them floating around in, in bags, so on and so forth. It's more of a convenience thing. If um, I have been thinking about for things that I really care about putting other trackers in, mostly because then they won't warn you <laughs> that they're there. Um, and so uh, the, the issue is, is the Apple tracker does this little alert thing. 
and I don't necessarily want to make it obvious that the case has an has an app uh, has a tracker in it. Um, one of the things that I've been considering is actually putting you know a tile or something else that isn't going to give you a warning. Um, that is, you know, that that's a primary tracker and put an Apple tracker that gives you a warning <laughs> that, that, that is there so that you, exactly what Keely's talking about, which is that you'll rip it off, thinking that you have it, and then it's still, there's still another tracker that's built into the system. Um, and so those are the kind of things, right now I just kind of put them in everything. And, and it's less about people worrying about people stealing it and more about me just knowing where it is. Like, what did I do with that thing? You know, and I've, I've definitely been warned that I left a case behind that I, to, I shouldn't have. Um, I was at an airport. I have a tendency to only use carry-on. And so if I check things, I have a bad habit of forgetting that I checked them. And I almost left the airport uh, without a case. And it was like, hey, you left a case. And I, and I was like, how would it know? And, and then I looked down. I was like, all right, I have a, I have another case there. But I, but now it, it's really fun. We, we send a FedEx uh, of like 10 cases. And it's fun. You see this little group of cases going down the road. And then they sit there and I knew where, I knew one of the cases got left behind and I'm like, it's there. And they're like, no, we don't know where it is in the warehouse. I'm like, it's in the back corner, the back east corner of your, of your warehouse. <laughs> That's where it is. And they had, they went back and they could find it. So, um, so anyway, so I, it's, it's kind of a fun, fun process. Uh, next question. Whoop, can't hear you. It's Tony Mobley from Noonan, Georgia. As a person who wants to embrace DaVinci Resolve, is there any chance that there can be a lab in the future for beginners? Yeah, we can absolutely uh, work on getting some labs for Resolve. Um, and so, you know, I think that we did those labs in the past and they, you know, they, they just, we just didn't get as many questions as we thought we would. And so we, we kind of haven't come back to them, um, but we can definitely, I think it's a different time now. That was two years ago. So, um, so I think that we, we can look at it. I think that, you know, for me, for someone like me, I do about half and half now. I'm like half final cut when I need to do go quickly. And then I'm half resolve when I need to be precise. I don't really know as a user, I don't really know where Premiere fits in for me. I mean, I think I think people are, are into the marketing of it and they use it, but it's kind of in the middle. Like it doesn't, it's not as precise as Resolve and not as fast as Final Cut. And it, and there's a subscription <laughs> with both of those. Um, my camera came with a with a copy of Resolve, and my uh, my camera came with a copy of Resolve and um, like the studio version and Final Cut, and neither of them ever charge for upgrades. So I have a really hard time. You know, I think that you know I think Premiere will be fine because Adobe is doing fine, but I I don't understand understand for people who are just operating out of it i don't understand kind of the the business model there i think is difficult for adobe at this point they're doing great they had a great update in this last one but so did resolve and resolve has about three times more engineers <laughs> so that's the that's the that's the issue right now um, next question al trivet from carmichael california any thoughts on apple's latest win in the legal battle with epic games uh, go ahead jeffrey you know, this is a split thing for me. I, of course, the, the biggest uh, thing was the whole App Store and Epic wanting to uh, do in-app purchases without having the App Store uh, stick their hands into things, which, of course, can cause security issues. That's where this is all based off of. Uh, with the fact that Apple is limiting Epic on there, it's really having a hard time for, uh, you know, people to think that they can that Apple can be a... a, a a competing gaming system with everything. In fact, we ha I had a great conversation last week at NAB about vMix, and one of the reasons why vMix is not on Apple is because it's it doesn't run the graphics the same way as a PC, and therefore, you know, you, if if you get a gaming system, you get a PC. You don't get an Apple, and Apple really wants to try and get into that market, but I don't see them 
doing that by squelching or not creating some sort of partnership with Epic to make that happen. And of course, with uh, things like Unreal Engine, we just we just lose out on it. So it's a lose-lose situation in my book. This is a bad case. Like it's, it, it was, and people, anyone who's listened to me talk about, talk about it, it doesn't matter what the, what the, the, the issues are. It was a bad case. <laughs> like, you know, like it was a bad case. You're trying to prove, uh, you're trying to prove, uh, you have to prove to make this work. You have to prove that Apple is, has a monopoly. And the only way to prove that Apple has a monopoly is to prove that the iPhone is materially different than an Android phone. The phones look almost identical now. Like at this point, all phones look the same. Um, it's two different operating systems, but but you have to argue that Apple, for some reason, is not a phone. It's an Apple device, you know, and that's like saying a BMW is a BMW. <laughs> like, you know, like, so it has a it has a, a, a lock on BMWs instead of it's part of a larger ecosystem. Apple is a minority shareholder in the world usage of phones. And so there was, you know, trying to get over that hump was impossible. Like, 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 like it was impossible. Like this was, a, this was a dumb thing to do from the day it happened. You know, I understand what Epic wants and I don't think it has anything to do with games. Epic wants to build a platform to sell things. They want to sell you goods. So they want to build the metaverse and then they want you to buy a house and a car like you do with Roblox. My, my daughter is on Roblox and she, you know, they buy items and they pass those items back and forth. And those are on fake dollars and Epic wants to use real dollars. They want to be able to do um, they want to be able to sell you things, um, all kinds of items that you need for the metaverse and for all the things that you're building and all the things that, you're th that are there. And they don't want to pay Apple 30% of every one of those sales. That's what this is all about. You know, they they are looking out into the future saying, you know, this is, our, this is a huge market. And they're right. It's a big market to do that. But... They don't want, but Apple is going to take 30% because they're over. Now, the problem is, is that 98% of developers are under a million dollars of revenue. And so it's only 15% for them, you know, and I could guarantee that anything that they did on their own would not be as, as lucrative as giving Apple 15% and selling it into the store. I'm about to sell the product that I've been, you know, my little drawing program into it. There's no other place I'd rather put it, you know, at 15%, I'm, I'm totally fine. I'm not going to make a million dollars with this. Um, and so, so I think that, that there, you know, I'll talk about it probably more, more in Mac break, but it was just a bad, it was, it, it was just a really poor, poorly, um, executed. I mean, it was, there was no way that they were going to win this. Like there was, I, I, I don't know what, you know, drugs they were taking when they actually filed it, but there was no way it was ever going to make it, um, through the system. And, uh, and so anyway, so it's kind of, you know, like, okay, well, you know, they have a chance of getting, I mean, the European commissions may do something because they're not really connected to reality, but they're not, but that's not, um, uh, but so that the Europeans may do something with it because it's not an American, you know, the Europeans don't have any real tech companies. <laughs> so, so the, um, so the, uh, so that's the, that's the real issue that they have. They don't care. Um, and so, but, but the, the case itself is just, it was just a dog. You know, I, I grew up in, in the legal family, like you just look at cases and you go, well, that's a dog. <laughs> like, you know, like that, that one's going to be a hard one. Sometimes you own that case and then you don't want to be doing that case, but this was a dog when it started. Um, next question. Douglas Carmichael is back. Alex, you mentioned that larger LED walls can reach into the multi-megawatt range. I've seen smaller walls that are just a source processor and tiles, but how do you manage larger walls and scale and align multiple sources on different parts of the wall? Yeah, I mean, it's probably a whole, we, we did an, a great second hour with View, but we didn't really dig into the, we did, dug into their business model, but not as much their tech. And I think it'd be probably worth coming back to do that. There are specific, you know, um, companies that are, you know, usually the, 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 the processors themselves come with their own 
system to distribute those across. And there's a couple things that, that system has to do. And, and the systems are, not, uh, there's too many to to just say this is the one um, to do it with the panels. But what they have to do is they have to manage the brightness of each panel because they're all going to be a little different. And so you have to kind of blend them all together. Um, and then they have to map it across those. Now, there are things that um, that definitely desi are designed to map across those systems, um, like Resolume uh, Arena, uh, as well as uh, Disguise, and a bunch of other ones that are designed to, to, to work across those. But the actual low-level con connection to the LED is usually built by another processor. And we'll see if we can find someone to come on and talk about it in the second hour, uh, in a second hour. Next question. It's Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida. Will office hours be at Infocom this year? I'll go ahead, Jeffrey. I'll be at Infocom this year. Uh, and I know there's a couple other, <clears throat> excuse me, office hours uh, members that will also be at Infocom. Uh, but there is going to be, uh, as far as I know, no actual production. Uh, I might uh, pull out my phone and do some after hours stuff, but that's basically it. I have two sessions that I'll be talking on, both of them uh, doing remote work. Uh, in 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 the field, so uh, one's going to be a panel, and then one's going to be my own uh, session, which is going to be a lot of fun. And I'll be doing a session uh, with Sam at at, um, uh, at at from Zoom. We'll be doing a session together um, um, on um, hybrid and digital events. <laughs> so that'll, uh, but I'll be coming in virtually. Next question. It's from Eduardo Augustine from Panama. Which other alternatives to a Telestrator in macOS and WinOS uh, without doing the ATEM method would you recommend? I don't know of any, to be honest. I mean, I don't know of any that are sold that are that are doing this. I mean, there's some, like, there is a, there's software that's made by um, NewTek that, that will do the Telestration uh, piece. So that's the only software I know. I think it's like $1,300 um, for that, uh, you know, for that system. And when I looked at it, I was like, well, you could buy a Mac Mini and the Wacom that I had and, you know, something really inexpensive and still have the same product and it would be hardware and it'd be in and out. So uh, yeah, go ahead, Jeffrey. Uh, this a uh, couple of years ago, because you had the NDI, uh, but there was also another one. I'm, I'm looking for it really quick. It's called Panimation. I did actually did a video on this back in uh, 2020. It is a PC-based Telestrator, and, uh, and it does have NDI in, so you can bring the screen in via NDI. You can uh, telestrate on it and then uh, and then send it back out via NDI. It's uh, last time uh, I'm looking at my article that I wrote for it a couple of years ago. It's $195 for the software, and I can put my link into that, and you can take a look to see if that uh, if that's still around. I go ahead, John. The budget method is to to chroma key out using software based switchers. So David Paskin and I do very similar. So I run I run Procreate on the iPad with the green screen behind the illustrations, and then I chroma key that out in OBS. And it's clunky, but it, it works. Next question. Our next question comes from Matthias Utila from Helsinki, Finland. He downloaded Beast Camp to iPhone yesterday, and the one-time purchase is the same price as the Filmic Pro one-week subscription. The only differences for him is that the Filmic has flat and log profiles and support for Frame.io. Why would panelists choose Filmic instead of Beastcam? Mostly because most of us know uh, Filmic really well, and we don't know Beastcam. I just downloaded it. I didn't even know Beastcam existed until you recommended it here. So uh, so I'm, I'm downloading. I, I paid my $2.99, and if you ask that question again next week, I may have shot some stuff with it and thought about it. Um, next question. 
Andy Kokendorfer is back. What is your favorite travel tripod? Um, my favorite travel tripod is the um, Mi Photo is my favorite one, um, but I also have a couple other ones. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Uh, I'm a monopod guy, uh, but then again, I do I do my videos a lot different than some some people travel with these high end uh, uh, tripods because they need them. And uh, but my cameras are fairly small, so the monopods are are perfect for me. And which monopod do you use? Uh, well, we, you saw the Sarui. I have a couple other couple other brands I can't think of offhand. Uh, but the biggest thing is about those feet and how they set on the ground, especially in a padded. Uh, carpet situation. Uh, the Sarui one I have, which I, I found out that Sarui, who was at NAB, actually got rid of the bigger bigger feet. We got the smaller feet. And so we had a nice little conversation on why that was because I it was just one of the, it's one of those qualifiers that I have. I know that Manfrotto also has something where the feet kind of extend out. So you bring them down and then you can pull them out and they, and and give them a little bit longer foothold on the uh, on the ground uh so i'm going to be looking into those but uh the best part about the uh, if you're if you're gun and run type situation taking the monopod lifting it up moving to the next spot dropping it down is just so much easier than trying to pull out a tripod yeah and the one that i that that i used i've used for a long time are the me photo globe trotters um the, one of the things that's a, re a requirement for me is that i have to be able to fit it into a carry-on so when i fold it all up I need to be able to full, you know, put it, drop it into a carry-on. There's also the Manfrotto 190, which I've used a fair bit, which has a little handle on it for smaller things that I've used. But the main thing is, is that it, it has to be able to, when I set it into a, a standard carry-on, it has to be able to just drop straight into it, not go at an angle, but drop straight in. Um, now, there are some of the ones that are a little bit larger that sometimes have a head that I have to screw off and put it in. That's okay if I'm looking for a heavier tripod. But you want to look at that. Um, so you want, and I don't usually... Um, I, I admit for my tripods, I don't worry too much about a fluid head. And that mostly has to do with the fact that um, I think that most fluid heads that cost less than $2,000 are really not that great. <laughs> so I'm probably not going to do slow moves with them anyway. So um, so, I, uh, so I have a tendency to get, you know, just um, a ball head um, that I'm going to have there that I can easily kind of um, reorient and, and flatten the camera out. Uh, when I'm taking a travel tripod, I don't have expectations of doing a lot of camera moves because mostly I'm super sensitive to how how it looks. Um, next question. It's Douglas Carmichael asking, I remember watching a Korean streamer in 2016. They were streaming from a yacht via the then new LTE on a river in Seoul. While there was macro blocking, the stream never dropped out. Why could this be? I go ahead, Courtney. Very dense LTE cell sites all up and down the river, probably. Cellular is designed to hand off from one cell site to the next without uh, uh, any packet loss, technically. Uh, and if it's you don't know how much buffering was going on there, it could be two or three seconds worth of buffering so that any packet loss can be resent when it reaches the next uh, LTE cell tower. Uh, and there's always usually overlap and, and major metropolitan areas like in Seoul um, have a lot of uh, cell points. And I imagine if the river is used a lot for transportation that they're going to put those cell towers uh, up along the river's edge so you could go all the way up and down the river without ever losing contact. It's kind of like trying to live stream between uh, Los Angeles and Las Vegas. There's cell towers all along the way and rarely does data drop out uh, from during that whole trip.
Go, Jeffrey. Yeah, I totally agree. The, the river you're talking about is called the Han River. I've been down it a couple times. Uh, spent a couple of many, many times in 2018, 2019 in South Korea. And South Korean Telecom SK is uh, what you'll see the logo as. Uh, it, they are investing lots of money, in, not only in in the technology. They, the Korea invests a lot in their startups. They invest a lot in in anything to get them further and get uh, companies to come to Korea to create their uh, products and sell their products. So they are, uh, even hotels have these high bandwidth uh, connections and they'll even give you hotspots. So if you have, if your phone doesn't have a local connection, then the hot, you can take the hotspot with you to, uh, to use your phone for whatever you need. So uh, they, I don't know about the towers out along the Han. I'd never thought I saw any towers, but it's definitely a great place to uh, to have any type of bandwidth. Next question. Tony Mobley from Noonan, Georgia is back. Could the panel recommend a tripod for use with my setup in the future with my ICANN teleprompter and maybe gigs in the field? Yeah, as, as we started to go to heavier tripods, a lot of the ones that we've looked at from a cost-effective perspective. So again, the heads don't have to be perfect, um, but, but there are a lot in the Benro line. So Benro is a relatively, for heavier tripods, because once you start putting a teleprompter on, it's a heavier head. So you have, um, you're going to have a, a larger head that is going to have more weight to it. Um, so some of the larger, now they are, they do start to cost money. So you're talking three, four, five hundred $500 for a good tripod that's going to sit underneath that. You really want to pay attention to the head uh, and what it's rated for. So if it says that it's rated for seven pounds, then with your tri with your teleprompter and your camera and everything else, figure out what that is. Um, the other thing that's important is when you start to add those, you want to make sure that they're balanced. So every time you put it on the tripod, you want to turn its, you want to unlock it from the tilt position, and you want to turn its friction all the way to zero. And then you move the whole system back and forth until it just balances. It just sits there and then you tighten everything up again. And the reason you do that is because it doesn't put more pressure on the fluid head. And so if you don't do that, over time, your fluid head will actually start to leak fluid <laughs> because you're putting too much pressure on it. And so it'll it'll actually wear down the head. And so what you want to be careful of is, is, is putting pressure on that head. Um, so balancing it is really important. And then also matching the rating of the head, you know, for that process. And you're probably looking at with a camera and a, and a teleprompter, you're probably looking at eight or 10, eight or 10 pounds um, that you're adding to there. And that puts you in a different class of, of tripod head than you would normally have um, to make that work. Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, yeah, I used uh, for teleprompter use about the minimum, I would go with something like this uh, Manfrotto, which is about 900, uh, 900 bucks, the 504 X fluid head and tripod that glues the head and the tripod though. So, uh, and that tripod is is has a built-in spreader in the middle there, which is handy to have, and it has the uh, removable pads and the feet so that you can go into carpet. And it has a little carrying case, uh, and it's pretty tall. It'll handle up to about twenty-five to thirty pounds, I think. So, um, most teleprompters these days with the LCD screens are only about you know ten to eleven pounds, maybe. So add that to the, the weight of your camera. It depends on how heavy a camera you have, but something like that could work for you. Yeah, and the, the Benros are very similar to that. They just are a little less expensive. Um, but they, and, and again, the, I, I find that they're, 
Um, they're panning. There's a little bit of play at the beginning and the end, so it's probably not going to work as well as the one that that um, that Courtney recommended, the Manfrotto, which I've had the 504s. Um, but the Benros are, you know, you know, you can get one that will do 11 pounds for 250 bucks or 300 bucks. And uh, are you going to do great, you know, pans with it and everything else? No. Will it hold a teleprompter? Yes. You know, so that's the um, that's the thing you want to kind of look at as well. Next question. Douglas Carmichael asks, Ross has the Bach Liberty module that is pin compatible with the Dante Brooklyn 2, but supports standard AES 67. Could this dethrone Dante in favor of native AES 67? Um, unlikely. <laughs> like I think that uh, I don't think anything's going to dethrone Dante at this point, um, but I think that there are definitely verticals that make sense. So very, very large events that want to use Ravenna. Um, that may may want to do that. It, you know, it may make sense, but I think for the average person that wants to network audio, uh, Dante is kind of kind of owns the owns the place, and I don't know how someone would would displace them at this point. Next question. Our next question comes from Alan Jones in Vincenza in Italy. Alex, what is the name of your drawing Telestrator app, and when will it drop? Any other details you can share? Re it. Um, yeah, so uh, it will drop in May. Um, it might be the end of May, but we'll, we'll see. Uh, I'm working with uh, Juan C. Robles on it right now. And as we add things, you know, it, I'm trying to resist, uh, you know, the feature creep. <laughs> so so I'm trying to resist feature creep, but we can't help a little bit of it because we're trying to make it really work seamlessly with the way that I... That, that I'm trying to, you know, make it so that it doesn't really have an interface, but you have lots of gestures and it's, it's going to work on both the Mac and iPad. Um, and uh, so it's a single install for M1 um, and uh, an iPad. It's not going to, I don't know if it'll go back backwards after that. Um, and, um, and so, so anyway, so that's what we're, we're building it for. Uh, and uh, I don't, the name is still, we're still working on the name. <laughs> so, so uh, what it's going to call, I had a name for it. And now we're not sure. So, um, so we're kind of working through that. Um, but it, it, you know, it's cool. It's got colors. <laughs> so we've got 10 colors in it instead of just the one. Uh, and uh, it's a lot smoother. Um, there's a couple things that, you know, a lot of it, again, I'm a real, I don't like interfaces. And so I really want it to be something that I can be using and you never see it pop up. And so, uh, and so there, there's a lot of pieces of that puzzle that, that we're kind of working out. Um, but it should, it's, it went from being like a little thing that we were throwing together to a really cool, in my opinion, a really cool app. And so uh, Juan has done an incredible job on it. And um, we should, again, I, I fully expect to release it in May. Um, we're just trying to, there's some little issues about it that, that I just, you know, I'm trying to make it as a, as a speaker. I want it to be as fluid an experience as, as possible. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael asks, in the SpaceX Starship launch test stream, the spaceship test launch stream, they had real-time data from the rocket. How would they pipe the data from their control systems to presumably SPX? Um, go ahead, John. Cuomo has done some work for SpaceX in the past. I'm not sure if he's still doing it or not, but, but in, it, you know, um, SPX works in conjunction with Casper as playout. Uh, we use SPX for our rocket shoot. We found the transmitters that SpaceX uses to transmit down to the ground. They're IP-based transmitters. And then from there, you have to parse the data out and feed it into something like SPX. But they've got amazing brain power inside there. We know a few of those guys. So I don't know. I'll talk to Tuomo and see if he's got any more insight. Good, Courtney. 
Yeah, John said most of it there. They they have full of a lot of software engineers and developers in inside SpaceX, and so it's easy for them to take the telemetry data and make a graphical representation of it, which can then be piped to all the uh, all the desks out there where they're controlling the spacecraft, so they can just take a glance at and tell how many engines are lit up or what the uh, attitude of the spacecraft is or altitude of the spacecraft is. So. All right. We are shifting subjects to our second hour and I'm um, talking about computer graphics. Um, and so in all versions of computer graphics. And so one of the things that we're looking at on, uh, it's, 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 it's a really interesting thing that I was talking to someone about. I, it comes up every time I talk about this day is that when we were in, when I was doing pixel core, um, it, you know, it came out of mostly, uh, my work on, on star Wars. And as a result, everyone was into computer graphics and no one was interested in video or audio. <laughs> like I couldn't get anybody to talk about video and audio. Like everything was a, a, a you know, kind of a, a dead end there. Um, and in, because of this is a different time, you know, graphics is something that is not as popular within our group, but it's something that is very, very important. Um, you know, a lot of what we're doing is like, how do we actually make this stuff work and how do we illustrate things? And I think there's a lot of opportunities for our, our organization that are coming up and we want to make sure that we're able to take advantage of those. You know, a lot of times, you know, what they say is that, uh, luck is, a prepar when preparation meets opportunity and there is an enormous number of opportunities that are out there uh, for, uh, you know, if we're learning computer graphics and if we if we build a, a group that's able to do that. Um, it also just adds to a lot of the things that we're doing otherwise. And so, you know, when I look at computer graphics for this day, you know, I'm really looking at all the different aspects of it. So whether it's, um, you know, true 3D, Cinema 4D or Blender or Maya or other things like that, as well as, um, you know, photogrammetry and LIDAR. Those are things that are all fitting into kind of the model that we have here. Um, and so, so those are the things that I think are going to be, um, you know, interesting from a pure 3D perspective, but there's also 2D. Um, and by the way, if you, if you have suggestions of things that you'd like to see us cover, um, go ahead and throw those into Makana. But there's also the 2D. So there's the motion and the after effects and, and, you know, how do we do motion graphics? How do we, how do those build in? We've, covered a lot of those different things in, um, uh, uh, you know, with, with, you know, throughout the, uh, the time that we've, we've had this, this day. So it, it can be looking at other people's graphics like we have with some of the broadcasts, but it can also be, you know, how do we create those and how do we make them live? So we've had, um, we're, we're probably going to do more with Tuomo and more with other things with broadcast graphics of like, what is a key fill and how do we make that work? And what do we, how do we deliver those graphics as well as, you know, how do we drive the question that we just had, which is how do we drive data into real-time graphics? That's probably a whole second hour that we could, um, that we could produce there. And so I think that those are the kind of things, um, you know, I'm, we're thinking about bringing, uh, folks on to talk more about fusion, uh, you know, inside of resolve as well as motion from, from, and, and as well as after effects. Um, I've got some folks that we're talking to there. And so I think that, um, I think that those are, you know, some of the things that we're, we're considering or that we're looking at, um, in, in bringing into these, these days. Um, I, I think that you saw Alan Hawks, um, came, you know, came on and talked a little bit about his history, uh, starting next week. I think we're going to start bringing him in to actually just show what he's working on, um, you know, and, uh, or, or talk about specific, um, fundamentals. Uh, Nick Justishin is going to start spending more time with us. Um, and so those days will become, and Nick's going to have, you know, what we're looking at is having Nick and, Alan and myself probably each take on one of the weeks of each month to talk about something specific. Um, and then also, of course, bring in vendors to talk about the kind of um, 
you know, stuff that they're doing and, and really use those, but really use them as a way for us to work through like, what is, uh, what is that concept and how does that work? And I also think that computer graphics will incorporate things like, I think that it's probably leans over we it, it, like where you fit 3D printing in, but I'd probably go to computer graphics because we have to build it. <laughs> like we still have to model it. Um, so it'd probably fit more into a Tuesday than a Friday um, as far as that goes. So 3D printing is another thing that we may may look at there. So, um, so I think these are a couple of the things that we're kind of working through. If you've got suggestions of things around computer graphics, mid-journey, of course, is another thing that we've been. By the way, I, I, um, I don't know. I, someone posted something that they were doing in Firefly. And one thing I have learned about a lot of these models is that if it works in one place, it works in both places. And so as soon as they threw it in there, I went and tried it. And um, what was it? This, John, you'll enjoy this. This was, uh, I hadn't, um, padding on all sides, isolated on a white background. So that turns out like I had like over a white background or in front of a white background or whatever and got varying levels of, of uh, uh, success. Uh, when, I, when I put in padding on all sides, isolated on a white background, I'm getting the objects that I'm looking for every single time, like 100% of the time. And so um, us looking at how to, because I, and you're probably wondering why I do that, by the way, is, is because I build, I have lots and lots of objects that I put into my PowerPoint or not my PowerPoint, my keynote slides. And I need them over white so that I can key them easily. I put, I build white slides, even though I should, I really want to do dark slides. It's easier to key things over white slides. And so it's easier to find all the objects. And I used to try to find them on Google and find the object and throw it, you know, key it out and throw it in. And it was much easier to do this in, in mid-journey. And so I build lots and lots of objects and I, I make characters. So I have like, um, a character that's confused in the style of Pixar. And now, you know, and so, and I want to just, and drop them onto the, onto my keynote. So I have like little things like a person thinking, a person bored, a person in pain, whatever it is that I'm, that I'm trying to do. Um, I, I, yesterday I went, I was building trolls. Um, and, uh, like, I'll give you an idea here. Hold on. Uh, let's see if I can do this quickly and easily, but this is an example of, um, let's see. Sorry here. Um, so this is like, I said, geeky, it's like geeky troll, geeky computer troll, um, uh, you know, padding, uh, all, you know, on all sides over a white background. And so there's the, you know, there, those are my, my little trolls that I'm using to talk about trolls on internet events and so on and so forth. But, um, so this is the kind of way that I use, I use mid journey anyway. But the point is, is that, uh, I think that we'll, we'll, we'll probably be talking about generative art inside of this day, probably once a month, you know, just to talk about like things that are working, the new things that are coming out, vendors that are working on it, because I think it's going to be something that really makes a big difference for us. So anyway, so those are some of the things that we're, that I'm thinking about um, as we go through this. If there's not a lot of suggestions, it'll be really short. <laughs> so so we'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, but we're, you know, we're really committed to it. And I think that it's important. I think one of the things that we're looking at also is uh, you know, we expect to see a lot of whether it's actual hardware or not, we expect to see a huge push um, from Apple uh, in June related to AR and USDZ. And, you know, it's something that we really, you know, when it comes to figuring out what can keep us all employed and working and so on and so forth, I think understanding, staying on the front edge of that, the the, the big issue is between overseas work and you know, for those of us in America between overseas work and 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 AI 
there is no, there's not going to be much of a long tail. You're going to be in the front, the front part of what's happening, or you're not going to be able to work in the industry. So there's not going to be a long tail of you can be okay at something. And so when we look at the, a lot of these things, understanding it and really getting good at it is really, really important um, for our, you know, for our employability. So it's one of the things we want to pay attention to. Uh, let's go into the, into the first uh, suggestion. Sure. The first suggestion comes from Stephen Kimbrough from Berkeley, California. He'd like to see Adam Toe dive into what's happening in mix effects and get a nice state of the tool from the stores. I think I think we should absolutely bring Adam back on. We've had Adam on before. We've had some labs with him. We've had him on to on the second hours, but it's been a while, and I think that we could bring him on. I, I will say that that uh, mix effect uh, mix effects Pro is. I mean, I, I don't even know why you'd own a an ATEM that's larger than the little one. I mean, the little one, you may or may not use it as much, but as soon as you have a super source, it is like the super source tool. And, uh, and without it, I don't even know. It's, I find that the super sources on the ATEM are almost useless without mix effect. Um, so, so I think that it's a, it's a pretty powerful tool. Um, you know, for those of you, super sources are the multiple windows that you often see. I mean, maybe we can pull one up here while I'm talking to show a couple things. I don't know if it's set up for that way because no one raised their hand there. So, so anyway, so the, um, uh, but a super source is multiple, um, you know, the, the three or four people. And so it's a, it's a version of the graphics. And uh, so anyway, that's something to think about there. Uh, next question. Rob Collins is asking, how could someone new get started with making graphics to add to their video? Uh, go ahead, Keely. Yeah, I had a really interesting uh, experience watching a presentation by Laura Evans-Hill from Atomic Visuals. And I think she would be a really interesting guest to, to bring on. Her approach is to teach people the visual frameworks in a very basic, almost stick person aspect and trying to empower every presenter to use their own drawn pictures in order to illustrate the concepts that they're trying to get across. And this might be a little bit more educational and, and that sort of thing. But I, I thought that the systematic approach she used to the actual frameworks and how you want to be able to get information across very, very quickly uh, through your own sketches was really, really interesting. And she might be an interesting guest or that kind of approach to bring on to uh, this sort of show. Yeah, the uh, I, I think that looking at a lot of ways to get started is really, really important. And there's a lot of things that people can start with. Like when someone asks me, what graphics should I start with? I'm like, Keynote or Canva. You know, those are the two that we talk about a lot. But but Keynote has so many animation tools and so many compositing tools and, and, and all kinds of bits and pieces that you can actually, I've built whole videos where I handed them to the client as a test, like this is, I rough this out over a day and I'm planning to build it all in motion or after effects or whatever, uh, for their product. And it's three or four minutes long and it's all, I've, and you know, I have a voiceover and I have all the movement and everything else. And the client's like, that's great. I'll buy that. And I'm like, I'm not done with it yet. And, and, um, but that's, that's the level at which Keynote is capable of doing a lot of those things. And Canva is also another good one. So when you start with some of these presentation tools, they also have a ton of tools that are already built in. And so I think that one of the things we, we've, you know, Keynote has kind of bounced around a little bit, but it's another thing that we're probably going to spend more time on um, in the future in this, this day is to bring Keynote up and, and talk about how, because that becomes to what Keely was talking about, like a very beginner, like you can just throw things together and you can you can actually export things in Keynote out with Alpha Channels. So if you want to add it to, to other things, you can build these animations that would be relatively easy. 
um, you know, from there, I typically recommend Motion. And of course, I'm very Apple oriented. So there's a lot of, um, you know, bits and pieces, but Motion is a $50 app that, I mean, the, the ROI on Motion to do computer graphics is stunning, you know, and and so uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a pretty, you know, you're paying at one time forever, <laughs> you know, like that's the big thing with, with Motion and Final Cut is that you don't have to pay again. Um, and so, uh, and Resolve is the next one after that. So those are the things that we kind of, um, you know, talk talk to related to doing motion graphics from a beginner perspective um, there. Now let's let, yeah, go ahead, Courtney. I was going to say, if you have an Adobe subscription for Photoshop, uh, After Effects has a lot of great um, templates you can use to get started. And you can see how those templates work for doing on-screen graphics for screen graphics and animation. Uh, that's a good place to start. And if you already have an Adobe subscription, you know, it might be included in there. So take a look at that. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the other ones that we use on, on from the motion and final cut side is motionvfx.com and they sell and you just get, you can get hundreds of different ones that you can buy and then put them in there. So the Adobe has ones that ship with it, but it does come with a subscription cost. Whereas the motion one, <laughs> there's one time cost. That's the same price as the subscription per month. <laughs> that that will do a lot of those things. And so, um, you know, I, and I have to admit that it's been, I opened, I had to do, I, I built a project in app. I, I was surprised that I can still remember all the things. I had to do a project in After Effects last week. And uh, I still remember where all the pieces were and all the nested comps and built all the things that are that are that were there. Uh, it was the best countdown clock ever, like that I built, <laughs> so so or that I that I worked on. Um, but uh, it was uh, uh, I, I was like, oh, that's I don't know. I could have done this in motion. Like I, I I did it because it was the the assets were delivered to me in After Effects. But I, I was like, I could have could have done this in motion just as easily. Um, uh, next question. It's Tommy Shantz from St. Paul, Minnesota, who currently sets the bar for graphics in broadcast and or on the web. You know, this is a really moving, this is a moving target right now. I mean, the big players for a lot of these things are uh, VizRT, Chiron, um, as well as uh, Expression from Ross. And um, so those are the those are the ones we see probably the most um, when we see something in a truck. You know, usually someone's coming in with a set of files and they're going to run one of those three um, is probably the most common for from a graphics playout perspective. But um, you know, I think that you know the things that we see more often SPX we're seeing or SPX or Casper um, are things. Casper it's, it has been around for a long time as a development platform, and so we see we're seeing more of those things. Um, you know, starting to pop pop up that that format um and then the big thing a lot of people are paying attention to is is unreal so unreal did something that was a little different than unity in the sense that unreal figured out how to do the drop frame so how to do 2997 as opposed to 30 and uh, unity chose not to do that and it was a huge infrastructural change when you're doing real-time video it's not like oh we'll just change it to do something else they had to change all the way the timing works and how it processed that and everything else and so um unreal went through that work five or six years ago and as a result no one really thinks about anything else when it comes to broadcast so we're seeing a lot of different unreal solutions um you know there's digital set solutions we were at the ross uh, booth uh, during neb but there are a lot of other view technologies which we've also had on the show and and we, we went and saw their their light bike um there so those two are the ones that we've we've paid attention to the most but they're all sitting on top of a you know, um, uh, some some version of an unreal engine because partially because of that broadcast compatibility and so one of the things a lot of people are looking at is that you know that a lot of these heavy hitters 
you know, have to pay a lot of attention to the fact that these Unreal solutions are much less expensive and, and coming up fast. The, the downside of the Unreal solutions right now mostly has to do with anti-aliasing edges. So the edges have just a little bit of aliasing that goes on on the outside of them. And as that, that rendering gets better, um, we expect to see a lot more Unreal solutions uh, coming out for that are used actually for motion graphics. Um, next question. Lopez Waterman is chiming in from Salisbury, Maryland. Should we revisit SPX? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, we should definitely. We use it every day, like what you're seeing right now, the graphics that you're seeing at the moment, or you saw just a second ago. Um, those are all SPX. And so um, so we'll, we we definitely should be bringing SPX back on. So we'll get Tuomo back on and have him answer questions, and we'll talk about how we use it in the show. Um, next question. Douglas Carmichael would love to have a second hour on Ross expression and how to use it. John, I hope Josh is writing down all these uh, suggestions yeah. this this week, Alex. That's the whole idea. That all we're doing is fishing for ideas. So. We're doing Josh's job for him this whole week. Uh, if we can get Bo and then Doug in his trailer, both both expression would be fabulous. Yeah, and we can probably get some folks from the expression team on, you know, through Bo. So, so I think that um, I think we definitely want to cover that. Yeah, the, the whole idea behind this 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 week, by the way, is. These aren't these all the suggestions you're putting in. We're taking track of them. We're trying to basically fill all of the days that we have in front of us between now and IBC, um, you know, out so that we, you know, are are not thinking about that. And then what we want to do is start to fill in. So we're going to basically fill out what we want to do, and then start filling extra data. So the idea is that if you see something that's going to happen on Tuesday on Monday or the week before, you get little links. Like, hey, you could check this out. Check out Expression. Here's some YouTube videos that are useful. Here's something you might want to read. You don't have to read those things, but the idea is that if you really want to get the most out of every second hour, there is a, there's a little bit of some study aids that you can watch to make sure that you understand what we're talking about. And the idea is, is for the, the folks that do that, um, they are going to get way more out of, they're going to be able to kind of suck all the marrow out of the out of the second hour and get everything out of what we're talking about they also will improve the conversation for everyone because they'll have more pointed more questions and more pointed questions because they have a little bit of ramp um, to figure that out so so those are the kind of things that we're um that we're looking at there next question local Lopez waterman is back and he's proposing should we do a second hour about 3d cad vectorworks autocad etc good courtney yeah, that would be cool, and especially creating 3D objects that could also be 3D printed. That would be very nice. Uh, what I'd love to see and figure out how to do would be to convert uh, uh, images from uh, uh, AI transformers into vector 3D objects. That is an extremely difficult task to do, and I don't think anyone has done it yet, have they? On Once they cross that little threshold, it's going to change a lot of stuff in the uh, 3D CAD area and, yeah, I mean, and, and 3d uh, graphics area and one thing we have to watch is that they already there's already a i believe a a uh, ai input for blender so you can say i want these objects and i want this thing and it just creates them you know and so so those some of those things it's, it's still not like as detailed as we but you know we're at the very beginning <laughs> so so i definitely think but i think that when to go back to these i think looking at how different cad programs are used especially in our kinds of production, I think would be really, really useful. Um, there's a lot of different types and they're used for different reasons. And so I think looking at how they're used in media, I think would be useful. Absolutely. Now, next question. 
It's Dave Troutman from Edmonton, Alberta. Can we find someone to explain the data feeds into live graphics pipeline kind of discussion? I think that would be a good one for Tuomo. You know, like if we're talking about how we're passing data in and turning it into graphics and what does that format look like and how does it how does it work? Um, I think those would be um, a great one as part of the SPX uh, discussion. But we, we can talk about that probably with almost every graphics package. Uh, every major bra- graphics package has some version of a data input that's available. So we'll take a look at that. Now, next question. Look is asking about graphics playback. In other words, what sends the graphics you have built to your show? Yeah, I think that talking about the playback engines, and this gets back into the 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 you know dealing with whether it's SPX or or VizRT or or New Blue or there's lots of other, um, and, and I think that there's probably some version of these shows that is an overview of of what it does, what are the basic requirements of a graphics package. Um, and I think that there's probably a, an hour, a second hour there that's just how graphics packages work and what's important when you're looking at them. Is it, are layers important? Is key fill output important? Is the dynamic data important? And all those things and talking through those and what, you know, what different packages may have some of those. Um, and so, um, so I think that that, uh, that that would be important there. Yeah, absolutely. Next question. Our next question is from John Snyder. Are there any events over the next few months that are worth analyzing graphics for? Uh, yeah, I mean, one of the things that, I mean, we're, we can definitely, let's see the graph that are worth analyzing. I, I don't know, you know, we've, I think that we'll keep on coming back to talking about certain subject matters. I think we've talked about super sources and, and lower thirds again, probably come back to sweepers somewhere in the future to talk about that construction of them. Um, but the, uh, but as far as a, an event that has happens, I don't know of any that are happening over the summer um, that would be as interesting. Now, as we build up towards the fall, one of the things that we're going to do is go to Seagraph. <laughs> so uh, we are going to cover Seagraph. Seagraph is in LA this year. Um, so uh, we'll be able to, well, it'll be a little easier for us to build a team. Usually it bounces back and forth between Los Angeles and Vancouver. And, uh, and Vancouver is a little harder. We just don't have as many people there. So LA, we think we can cover more effectively. And so, um, so, and we're working on getting a booth space there as well, as we are with Cinegear. I made the request. We'll see what happens. Um, but, but we're going to keep on kind of improving that process there. But, um, but I think that as far as events go that we should analyze, I think we'll have to be a little bit responsive to that because I'm not, I'm not sure what's coming up that we would necessarily um, look at in detail. Uh, next question. Dave Troutman is back. Can we have a session on image file formats and their most appropriate application or artifacts in online streams? Yeah, I think that there's a couple different file file formats. There's obviously the video file formats as well as the still file formats and what we can and can't do. So for instance, with a ping, we'll have an alpha channel, but the TGA has an alpha channel as well, but it has the difference between a ping and a TGA typically is that the T, that the TGA has its own alpha channel as a separate channel where the ping is a slightly different encoded and, and you know a lot of us find that we like to use the tga even though it's ancient 30 years old i think at this point it's an ancient format um but uh it's easy to process but we can look at those those are just stills and then then you look at you know what should we use apple ProRes and 4444 with alpha channels or you know what other formats can we use to do that type of thing and so figuring out what the video formats are and what what makes them good or bad versus the um versus the still formats. I think that's probably a whole second hour by itself. Um, next question. On his back from Reno, Nevada, some topics related to USDZ file format, how to make USDZ assets, how to use them in everyday apps, and any other suggestions? 
Yeah, that's a good idea. Uh, the, so USDZ, for those who are listening, are, is the universal scene description. Um, and so that's USD is the US universal screen descri- description. This is created by Pixar. So they can move their scenes around, you know, without, you know, without too much trouble. Uh, Apple saw it and said, why don't we zip that, <laughs> zip that up. And that's what became the USDZ format is it is a universal scene description that's in a zip format. And, and what that allows for is just a, one little file that can be moved wherever it needs to go. And so, so that it is um, a very, very important format in the sense that uh, Apple is leaning heavily into it to support, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of things across the operating system. So we, if you grab a USDZ model, and a lot of them, if you go up to something like the Smithsonian, and by the way, a second hour, by the way, for those who are writing down what the second hour should be, let me see if we can get someone from the Smithsonian to talk about how they do photogrammetry because they're doing tons of this all the time. You know, the Smithsonian is constantly digitizing it. And I know that because you can go up to the Smithsonian site and if you look for 3D models, if you just do a search for 3D models Smithsonian, you'll see all these USDZ models as well as OBJs and everything else. And you can download those. And what's interesting is if I text you a USDZ model from an iPhone to an iPhone, you'll just be able to open it up. Boop, it'll just pop up. And if it has a scale, it will literally pop up on your desktop at scale. You know, or or you can zoom it up and walk around it. You know, so you can build, you can take something that's very small and walk around it with AR. You can also open it up in preview and rotate it and and everything else. And so there's a lot of things like, for instance, we build 3D models of of some of the venues that we work in, and I literally open them in I open them in preview. I rotate them to where I need to go, and then I hit screen capture and I and I export that out. And the reason I do that is so I can put it in quickly, put it into Keynote. Obviously, there's a step there that I would prefer not to do. I really want to take the USDZ model and just drop it into Keynote <laughs> and, and just be able to have it there. And, the, and once it's in Keynote, it means that I can imagine having uh, any of the items that you would normally throw in, like a telephone or a globe or a, or a pencil or whatever it is you're using for a presentation. And imagine being able to just rotate it and move it into the positions that you want. Oh, I want it to be in this presentation. I want this 3D model to be in this this re- representation or I want to rotate it around. I want to see the back or the front. And then of course, you're going to want to animate that. So you're going to want to sit in Keynote and you're going to want to be able to just move it around um, and have it animated so that one of the things you could do is have things pop up and then have something rotate to another place and have those other things pop up. Um, and then of course, you know, after, you know, after you do that, you're going to want to be able to tap on it. If you send someone a presentation and have it just appear in front of them as part of the presentation. And those are the things that we think are all happen, going to happen with USDZ. So whether it's, you know, it'll happen inside a keynote, it'll happen inside of pages, it might even happen inside of numbers. Um, but we expect to see that. And we see some of that already in motion and final cut. And we're also, we also see some of the the issues with it is that like when you're animating something in motion, you're still seeing some of the the aliasing that I talked about because it's rendering in real time. Um, whereas what we're hoping to see is anti-aliasing as we go into the new, you know, taking full advantage of the M series chips and rendering that out. And so USDZ is, is a really important format and it's probably going to become the format for AR just because when Apple turns it on, there's because there's a lot of other people and they're all using different formats. <laughs> and Apple, it's like a lot of people were using a lot of different things and then Apple cho- cho- will choose that. And it's going to go out to so many things that, um, you know, the, the thing that we, the reason that it's important for us to talk about USDZ is there's a gold mine sitting there. There's just gold, like, there's like a mountain full of gold of th- new 3D assets that work seamlessly with Keynote. That when Keynote is launched, uh, it's just all the money. 
like you know so so like it's it's and it's hard because i don't have enough time to i look at it and going oh that'll be that, that's gonna be a big deal and i just don't i don't have the the, the time or effort to, to put the effort into it but a couple of us are talking about building collections of usdz models because if they were ready the first week that keynote was released they probably sell a million dollars worth of of stuff because people would just be like oh i want to try it out oh it's ten dollars to get 25 items and i want to throw them in and play with them in keynote but that probably won't happen <laughs> we'll probably wait until keynote pops out and then people will start building stuff uh next question it's from kyle hammond in chicago illinois an hour about graphics for people who don't have an eye for graphics but still need to make something like when to hire a graphics designer and when to diy you know i think that there's there's really an important piece of that of of just understanding basic rules of of engagement when it comes to design i think we could have just some the the five things you need to know about design related to white space and spacing the golden ratio there's a couple things that that a lot of us pay a lot of attention to that especially if you did a lot of print design you a lot of the things we learned in print design are still pretty applicable you know and how we put those things together and i think that it would be great to have just a basic a basic design hour um, so I think that would make a lot of sense. We are bringing someone on to talk about topography, which I'm pretty excited about. So talking about making fonts and what and what what those mean and everything else. And so some of those fundamentals, I think, are going to be really fun to work with. Um, next question. It's from Brody Hefner in New York City. Elgato Stream Deck has a growing list of graphics add-ins, and we've seen examples of interesting use cases amongst Office Hours regulars. How about regularly revisiting Stream Deck and companion graphics ideas? Yeah, I mean, I think that we can do that once a quarter. I don't know. I think once a month might be a little bit too too often, but I think once a quarter, looking at different things that are using Stream Deck and Companion, and maybe even Central Control. We we have I have been threatening to bring um, <laughs> Chota Max on for from Central Control. And we just saw him at, at the dinner. At the dinner, we saw him. So so we'll we'll get him on to talk about it. So Central Control, Companion, Stream Deck, those are all things that we should be covering more often. Um, next question. It's John Pareto from Las Vegas. It all starts with color theory. Can we get Mr. Wright back on? Uh, I think we probably can. We'll see. We'll see if we'll get. We'll, get, we'll see if we can get Mr. Wright to come. Um, Steve, Steve Wright uh, to come back on and talk about talk about color. Um, and and I think that you know getting um, a couple of Charles uh, would be good to have him talk about it. And it'd be great to just talk about some color theory. Um, you know of, of understanding. You know all these different things of just general things. And then we're. We are talking to some companies about talking about HDR color and what that means and how it changes and so on and so forth. One of the big, the interesting things is, is that we're getting now very close. You saw a test of doing HDR to the live stream in 5.1. There's going to be a point over the summer and the fall where we can talk about HDR and be in HDR. Like if you have an HDR monitor, you'll be able to actually see it or a phone. Um, you'll be able to actually see what we're talking about as opposed to always saying, well, if it was HDR, it would look like this. Uh, next question. The next question comes in from Chris Sabato in Albany, Oregon. What about VMix's GT Tyler? Titler. Uh, Titler. Um, yeah, I'm happy to. If we have somebody that's an expert at that that wants to 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 discuss it and show us how it how it comes together, hundred percent behind um, bringing them on. So it's just a matter of finding the right person to talk about it. Uh, next question. Black Lopez Waterman is opening the Pandora's box of fonts. I know this is a topic of knee jerk reactions for many of us. How about you? Yeah, I think talking about the use of fonts, again, we're going to bring someone on that actually uh, wrote a great book on on fonts. Um, and so we're going to bring her on in June, I think. That's when her she teaches, I think, in, in uh, University of Texas, actually, in, in Austin. And, and so she uh, 
Um, you know, so she's going to be coming on. Uh, Kelsey Gray uh, is going to be joining us in June, and um, and so we'll. Uh, that should be a lot of fun to talk about fonts in general and what they mean and the design of them. The use of them, I think, is probably even another second hour <laughs> that we can that we could talk about and how to use them, and why you should never use um, Comic Sans or uh, or uh, Papyrus. <laughs> and I think we'll have to start it off with we, we would get a we would get a strike or whatever if we did it, but you have to look at the just do Papyrus SNL, and you'll you'll understand that the, the uh, it's it's a must see. Uh, I I believe that every class about topography should start with that video um you know so anyway but uh those are the two fonts that we we would like to just tell you right now not to use but we will spend a whole second hour showing you why not to use those two fonts um next question yeah so good jesse mills from the san francisco bay area is chiming in how about using google slides for graphics how well would that work when luma keyed into an atem is it possible it's possible. I mean, anything's possible. You just do anything over black and you can key it. Uh, the controls that you have over the graphics in the Google Slides are pretty low. Um, and, you know, it's, you know, a lot of these um, of the kind of the four big ones, I, what I would say is what we see 99% of the time is either Keynote, Canva, PowerPoint, or Slides. Like those are the I don't, I mean, outside of that, we never see anybody do anything else. <laughs> like, I'm sure that there's other apps out there that do presentations, but those are the big four um, that we see. Um, what we tend to see here is that educators and a handful, you know, educators and some business folks will use slides, but they very rarely, if they're using slides, they're very rarely animating anything. You know, so they're, they're not, you know, they're, it's a slide you know, and it does that. It does, it's not that Google doesn't have animation tools, it's just no one uses them. And so as a result, they're not highly developed in that area. And so um, uh, then, you know, PowerPoint, it just has a, the culture of it has a look that isn't usually very, it, and also just what it does with fonts and stuff like that has never been seen or it's gotten much, much better, but it was always kind of seen as kind of behind Keynote. And so you see a lot of business folks that have Office 360 using it. Canva, we see picking up speed. Probably, it's probably growing the fastest as as far as people using it. Because and it, and it really comes down to templates. You know, templates are the thing that Canva does really, really well, better than anyone else. Is there's just tons and tons of templates, and it's not just templates for your presentation. It's templates for your cards and templates for you know. And my, I, you know, I, I use Keynote a lot, and um, I, I asked my wife was using Canva, and she was like putting together this whole thing with Canva. And I was like, I'm just curious, why are you using Canva instead of Keynote? She's like templates <laughs> you know, like i can just i can throw this thing in i can put this thing together and it all works you know and uh uh and um and then you know for typically for most of the like high-end presentations that we see that have video that have video we normally see keynote um and that that has been you know even if someone started in something else it usually gets converted in fact a lot of times companies that even made the other ones um they're slides would be quietly converted to keynote mostly because it's it handles fonts and anti-aliasing better or did I, I think that powerpoint's getting pretty close um to the quality of, of that and there's something about but there was always something about the keynote ones that looked a little bit nicer and then the animation tools and the control tools are they they play back better um, than the other the other platforms the playback systems on a mac um, and i think it had less to do with the software itself and more that the mac was more uh, standardized. And so a lot of people would play, try to play things back on PCs that just would blow up, 
you know, or or lose frames or slow down or do a lot of other things. And so, so I think those are the big four. And but I think that we can um, uh, talk about uh, what we want to do. I think that comparing those and doing what I just talked about, I just took up five minutes. We could have probably taken up a second hour talking about the differences of those. So comparing those would be good. But I think that um, I've definitely done whole presentations with Keynote where everything's keyed over top of me and around me and everything else. And it looks really cool. It's just really hard to do. Now, next question. Alok has given me lots of practice with his name. He would also be interested in graphics with a different focus, projection design in theater, projection mapping, and content creation for this vertical. Oh, I'd love to talk about that. I mean, I, you know, it, it's, you know, it's one of the things we see some projection mapping in the United States. In Europe, it's like everything. It seems like every event has some kind of crazy projection mapping going on. Um, and so everything we did that in everything I've done in Europe seemed to have a, a segment of it that was projection mapping. And projection mapping, of course, is is you're, you figure out the geometry of the building and you map that out and then you have the projector in a specific place. And if it's from that angle, it can it can actually map something that you can see and it looks like it's part of the building and so on and so forth. Um, and it's uh, and it's used in theater as well as exterior displays and so on and so forth. And I, I would love to bring somebody on to talk more about that. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, if you're just interested in that, go to uh, projectionmapping.org. It's a uh, org... It shows you all types of software and uh, mm -hmm. what it is, explanation of it, et cetera. Yeah. So it's a good place to get started. In yeah, absolutely. And we'll see, maybe we'll bring those folks on and have them talk about it. Uh, next question. It's from Douglas Carmichael. Building templates for SPX and using HTML5 editors to do so. Yeah, I think that bringing Tuomo on, and, and I think in the mixture of talking about what SPX does, but also having him actually walk us through the basic creation of that. I also think that we have to bring uh, Tuomo on to talk about SPX as it relates to Zoom. So there were seven, I think, seven companies that that adopted new things with Zoom. And I think that one of the things you're going to see over the next couple of months is us slowly bringing on each one of them um, to talk about how they've executed what they're putting together there. So stay tuned for that. Yeah. Next question. We're back with Brody Hefner from New York City. Clocks, countdown timers, and graphics that clearly and consistently refer to multiple time zones. Yeah, I think it'd be great. I mean, I've obviously, I feel like I've done the countdown clock often enough that I don't need to do it again. But but I think that we could talk about um, how to build those out. And, and definitely, you know, we still probably could do a second hour that's just on countdown clocks where we talk about the different ones that are on there's web-based countdown clocks there are um you know there's there's uh, obviously online ones there's ones that you or, or you know uh, app based ones uh, so those are all things that that i think that we could could do there yeah next question john foltz from Selins grove pennsylvania what about something on node-based graphics perhaps with black magic design fusion yeah yeah uh, I, i've been thinking about that for a little while and i think that talking about why nodes work. And, and I think part of the problem was is that I've, I've done a lot of nodal compositing, mostly in Shake of all things, and then also Conduit, which is an app that uh, my last company or a co previous company had sold. And so I did a lot of the, and thinking about nodes is, is, is great. And I think that I didn't know enough about Fusion, but now I've done enough in Fusion that I, I feel like I could probably, uh, you know, find somebody to, to talk about that. But we'll, we'll definitely bring it on. I think that Fusion is probably the easiest one because everyone can download it. So we would probably do things that are available in the free version of Fusion, I think it's probably the only free thing that you, we could get that everyone could play along. Play along. So I think we'll take a look at that. Uh, next question. 
It's from Jeffrey Powers in Madison, Wisconsin. The most annoying graphics, especially how people use graphics for their commercials, shows, and more like TikTokers do. How can they make a show pop while others cringe? I think it'd be good. I mean, I... I think it's already passed, but, you know, the unbearable likeness of greatness or whatever, the, you know, the Nick Cage thing that had Nick Cage and, and, uh, <laughs> um, I almost sent that, captured that clip at full resolution and sent it to a friend of mine or a company that I work with to roto it. And then I was going to put it back online going here, like here is a properly rotoed uh, version of this of this clip, so that when you do your TikToks, it doesn't look all nasty. Like like you know like like I can just here's a perfectly one. I, I, I so wanted to do that because bad mats, super sad to look at, and um, it would have. So I'm now looking. I've now that I've thought of it, if I see another one that happens like that, my my temptation is going to be to go ahead and you know donate the $200 that it'll take for me to have it wrote out <laughs> for that little clip so that I can, so that we can just put it up and people can just be like, okay, that now I can use it with my TikTok properly. Um, all right, next question. Vogue has another one. Should we be discuss signal path and wiring diagrams? How do you like them? All the wires, some or group together? A second hour on wiring diagrams would be great. Um, a lot of us have a wide variety of opinions about how we approach those. And I'll see if I can get, it'd be good to get Marty Brennis on because Marty does the really heavy ones, you know, in CAD. And when I look at his, my eyes just cross, you know, like and I, I build complex ones, but then there's like how to build an entire post facility in wiring diagrams with every, with every single wire tagged, you know, that, that is, this is what it looks like. And I think that that would be, that'd be good, be good to talk about. Uh, next question. Welcome to John Tenhouse from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Any plans for an Unreal 5 virtual production deep dive? Yeah, we'd love to. We just, it, and, and I think that when we talk about Nick coming on, Nick is probably going to do more of those, um, you know, talking about Unreal and and giving us some overviews. And he's been there before. We tried to do some labs and we didn't have enough people show up for them, to be honest. And so uh, on Saturdays, and so we ha we kind of pulled back from doing a lot of Unreal work. But I think it's been a while. So covering some of the new stuff and talking about it, I think would make a lot of sense. And I think that Nick also did a, he did a fun little um, short that he, he was a one of the Unreal fellows. You know, there's a fellowship thing where, that you can do for a couple months and, and put something together. And Nick actually was part of that program. And so it might be fun to have him break down his virtual production that he built there. Um, next question. There's more from Brody Hefner. How about exploring some examples of comprehensive corporate or organizational style guides? That's a great idea. Yeah, I think that it's it's hard because the a lot of the ones that I mean I I've seen some incredible ones and the hard part is finding ones that you're allowed to show. <laughs> you know, like they're not like they're sent to me but there's an NDA connected to them and I haven't been able to figure it out and you know there's teams that put together some pretty incredible style guides and um and and it, it's expensive. I mean like the a style guide done for a large corporation might cost 100 150,000 for or more. I mean some of them are millions. You know where they put them and they painstakingly put together these 50 60 pages of this is how you use the logo this is not how you use the logo this is what it has to look like that i know that like i had i did one with the nat geo one is like you can do this you can do this you can do this you can't do this <laughs> don't ever do this don't ever do this don't ever do this and so there's just a lot of like in between but talking about that would be great yeah next question john snyder from reno nevada is back best practices for visualizing data in video format yeah and and there's a new app for After Effects, actually, that that uh, Digital Anarchy put out that is just to take your data and visualize it. 
So I think that there, uh, there might be an opportunity to bring them on to talk about it, but I think that uh, in general, visualizing that data, it would be a really, really good subject for us to talk about because that, you know, that might be taking, like, I think one that's really interesting is taking spreadsheets of data and how do I, you know, take that data and not have to type everything in, but have it roll in and, and do what it needs to do to show that would be, I think, a good, a really good one. I've, another one that's, that, we haven't done yet because I don't feel like I know it well enough, but I had to do some visualization, some music visual, visualization, and I found it fascinating. I don't feel like I know it well enough yet <laughs> to do a lot more on it. Uh, so um, I, so I'm, I'm, I'm looking at doing some, trying to bring some people on that kind of specialize in that. Um, and, uh, and I'm building some stuff inside of both the thing, the two things that I've been playing with are both Cinema 4D as well as motion of bringing those things in and dynamically making it, but there's some apps to do it as well. And so I've been looking at what we might be able to talk about there. It's kind of cool. Uh, next question. Lolo Copas Waterman is back. Can we talk about graphics in real life, AKA set design? Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, something about pre-visualization, so set design and pre-vis uh, combined. So, you know, creating storyboards and lighting diagrams and, you know, basic pre-vis stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and, and But I think, yeah, and I think that, you know, we've done a lot in set design where it's a whole different set of rules because now there's logistics. You know, not only do we have to think about what is it going to look like, but what are, what are the materials that we're going to use and how are we going to build it and you know, there's, um, there's a lot of bits and pieces to make that work. Absolutely. Now, next question. We're back with John Snyder. Assuming Apple releases their headset, immersive graphics. Yeah, and I think that we have to keep paying attention to those, even if Apple doesn't release something, because immersive graphics are going to become something that's more and more and more important, you know, as we move forward. There's a lot of things that are happening in this area um, that I, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting. Yeah, I mean, the idea of headsets is not going away. <laughs> it's, 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 it's not gonna it's not gonna fade away um you know i think that people think it might but it, it, there's a lot of money going that direction and it's the, the the reason i'll say that is i did a lot of work in it and i will say that 90 percent of the work that i did we knew it wasn't going to work like like we were like this is dumb but oh there's a check <laughs> so, so so like like we'll we'll do whatever we we'll do whatever you need to do you know it's your, it's your nickel and we just play full out to make it to make it work but there was 10% of the time that was so magical that you were like, oh, people will want this all the time. Like, you know, like when it worked, it was so great that it was like, I could see why people would want to leave their, their headsets on all the time in those moments. But those were fleeting moments or individual games or other things like that. And, um, and so I think that I can see what's possible. It's just that we're not, right now, the industry is not piecing enough of those together at one time to make it worth it. Uh, next question. More from Tolok in Salisbury. How to pass an augmented reality workflow into your productions? Yeah, yeah. So I think that this is going to become something we pay more and more attention to as we as we move forward. And I think that we're going to probably see a lot, a lot. There's going to be a lot of interest after June. So we're probably not going to do something before June, but after June, I think we're probably going to pay a lot of attention to it. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, think about this application, Tolok. Uh, uh, you go into the set. You you do your lighting layout with your. Uh, uh, CAD software with a, a design of the set already built into the CAD software. You put on your goggles, you go in the set, and you look around and you see where every light is going to be, and every light is represented up in the grid or up in the ceiling or down on the floor, etc. 
uh, that you're going to use to light that particular set. And uh, as you walk around the set, you can see where the camera is going to be, where the lights are going to be, where the sound boom can be without casting shadows on the walls. Uh, and all that stuff could be done with augmented reality. Uh, whether it'll ever happen, eh, probably not. So we've used some of it in previs already, and and we did it because we had some test apps that we were using with Oculus, and we what we did is we we um, scanned a, a, a hotel room, a ballroom, and then we built the sets that we were going to 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 do inside of SketchUp, and then we exported those out into a uh, real time you know uh, render, and they're you know they're pretty realistic looking, um, and this was probably I don't know six or seven years ago, and the clients immediately they walked in and they were like this, you know, they made decisions that they would never make until they saw it. They made a whole bunch of things that they really liked. And the problem really was, is that the import and export process was too, was too cumbersome at that moment. The question of whether it was valuable was undeniable. Like it was like it, it immediately people saw why they'd want to do it. It's just that the money wasn't there to do it. You know, like the, and what I mean by that is that there just wasn't it took too many hours. And, and I think this is what ru the rumor is, is that Apple's spending an enormous amount of energy on is making sure that it's easy to develop content for their headset if they actually are going to release one. And if that actually happens, then we're talking about doing these kinds of things, you know, relatively easily. Um, and if that happens, I think that this is going to become a really important vertical. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I, I had the chance to work on uh, Poseidon Adventure, the new one, uh, the more recent one, uh, and doing uh, previs and set extensions on the set with uh, so that uh, VizRT created uh, an interactive interface so that they could load their set extensions in, and the camera's mounted on a on a Luma crane or a Techno crane, and it can move around within the existing set on the soundstage, but you know that set. In reality, once the CGI is done, is three or four stories tall, but it's only one story tall on the set. So they could, uh, so the director can see on the monitor when the camera tilts up, it'll uh, seamlessly blend the uh, the 3D implementation yeah. of the set extensions on. And that that came in pretty handy. But I, what we found out is it just became too impractical to use in day to day film production because. The details of tweaking the camera to get all the encoders and everything to work in real time uh, was just—it just took too long for every setup, and uh, it slowed them down. So they abandoned it after about uh, three days. Yeah, one of the things that we're, you know, what's happening now and what we're seeing with some of the AR stuff is that you lock that in, and, and there's a there's a couple of different things that that we've been seeing here, and there's probably a discussion here. I don't know where this how what how we structure this in a second hour, but. The main thing is, is that there are different la layers. So GPS tells me roughly where I'm at. And then one of the things we've done is scan locations, and then we build hashes out of those locations. And what I mean by that is that we can't, we don't want to throw 10 gigs of data at your phone. But if, if we have enough details that your phone locks into, it can know where it is. You know, it says, oh, if this corner of this sign and that is over here, then I know where I'm at. And so if you mix GPS that gets you into, let's say, an arena, and then you have ultra-wide band, ultra-wide band, um, uh, ultra-wide band, that can get you within six to 10 inches of location. So the, the GPS gets you within a couple feet, ultra-wide band gets you within a couple inches um, or six to 10 centimeters, so really like two or three inches. Now, when I search that data, that database in that arena, I don't have to search the whole thing. I'm pretty sure where you are. 
and now it makes the, the the sorting of that hash really efficient. And so within a second, I can go, oh, I know exactly where you are. And because I have all that parallax, you'll see that when it asks you to move your phone, because I see that I can get down to a point where I know where you are in that arena to a millimeter, like where the phone is. I don't know where you are, but I know exactly where that phone is, where the lens is, where the point is. Now I can add all these graphics on top of that, and it's going to all match all of the 3D and all the other bits and pieces. And when you think about why would you need that? Well, you could turn all, you know, you're going to a game up in Sacramento. You could be, you know, you could have all kinds of things happening. If Simple things like where are the restrooms? <laughs> There's a big arrow that like just big 3D arrow that, that, that points towards where you need to go or where is the hot dogs and it tells you where to go there. But it can also be adding all kinds of cool effects and creating, basically taking a venue and turning it into something else if you pick up your phone or if you put glasses on. I don't think you're going to put a lot of glasses on, but the phone can be this kind of window into an entire other location. Other things that, you know, we scanned my my family golf course and uh, my family's golf course. And one of the things we looked at is you could play entirely different games. If you're an AR, you pick up the phone, you think and there's targets on the, on the thing that if you hit those targets, you know, you get extra points or you do something. So you could play a different version of golf that has nothing to do with the, the version of golf that we normally play. Um, you know, and so you could do all kinds of things by picking up your phone or, or whatever while you're playing. And so those are all things that, that we think, and then you think about going to a castle and it's showing you what it used to look like and what it looked like when Henry V was there or Henry VIII was there or, you know, with people and things and everything else. And you're just looking around and seeing all this stuff. And we think that those are some of the opportunities that are out there um, to take advantage of. Next question. Yeah, it's from Brody Hefner in New York City. How about design of consistent, functional, and attractive thumbnail graphics styles for video playlists? Go ahead, Keely. I would absolutely love this as a person who's putting content on YouTube. Uh, thumbnail design is really important. And now that YouTube is finally manifesting their whole plan to uh, really take over the podcast space, the idea that podcast covers are YouTube thumbnails and vice versa is going to be something that people are really going to be playing with. And if anybody has Jay Alto on speed dial, uh, that would be amazing. Or somebody similar who's really a, precisely a thumbnail expert that can come in and talk about those principles would be absolutely amazing. I'm on a forum that there's a whole section that's just thumbnails. <laughs> that's all they talk about. And there's the, like, there's like lots and lots and lots of like, well, what about this thumbnail? And what does this, this is better than the other one? And most of them have, have something to do with <laughs> like that, that seems to be the key. Open your mouth and look look surprised that you're going to get someone to click on it. Uh, next question. Yeah, it's from Douglas Carmichael. Entering the graphics or video effects industry and the training programs for it. Yeah, no, I think that they, um, I think that that would be a really interesting one. And I think that talking about the basic principles that you need to understand. So understanding the basics of framing and space and time and everything else. And then also understanding things like keyframing, you know, whether it doesn't matter where you, what you're doing and where you're at, understanding how keyframing works is important, whether it's 3D or 2D. Um, and so understanding what those look like, I think some of the fundamentals of graphics, I think would be really, really useful there. Uh, next question. It's from Douglas Carmichael, comparing talent development programs in the industry like ILM's Jedi Academy. Yeah, I think that I think that looking at a lot of those would be would be useful. And we might be able to bring somebody on from ILM to talk about that. So we'll see what we can do there. All right. Well, that was a 
that was a good hour. I, at the beginning of the hour, I was like, well, we've got three questions. This is going to be really short. Like I was thinking like we might finish by 8.10. <laughs> so so the, I was like, I don't even know what to do with the other. I had a meeting that they wanted to do at 8.30. I was like, I, I might be able to make that meeting now. And I told them I can't do it because I'm on this on this show. So anyway, great, uh, great set. Of, um, this really helps. I know this week it can be a little bit long because we're going through all these suggestions, but I got to tell you, this is one of the most important weeks every quarter or every three or four months that we do this. Um, these are the, the some of the most important the ones we have because they help us define those. We, we get to know what you want as viewers, um, you know, as, as, as producers, um, not just what we think would might be cool. So uh, it's really, really important. We take copious notes, um, continue to put suggestions into the second hour suggestion pipe. Um, you know, that's inside of Discord, but this is a really, really useful one for all of us here. So um, definitely, uh, uh, you know, keep those coming. Uh, the rest of the week is the same. So through through the next four, whether it's audio, video, uh, infrastructure, education, we're going to be talking about this and gathering your, and this is defining what's going to happen between now and early September. So it's really worth coming. It's really worth putting in those suggestions. You're driving this conversation. Um, as the producers, and so so please uh, yeah. more please. Anyway, thanks to the uh, thanks to the panelists. Can't do this without you. Uh, it's really it's always great to see everybody here every morning, and um, and thanks to uh, uh, the incredible team on the back end uh, that makes this happen every single week. And we were ta- we keep talking about this, but it is it's an incredible way to meet other people and to make friends and to learn you know to learn how to do all these things, but also. To, it's, it's about learning, but it's also about really socializing with other folks. That there's an incredible team for me, and I and I admit, I mean, other everybody has their own, um, everybody has their own way of socializing. For me, it's just like I want to do a project. That's how I get to know people. <laughs> like, like is is people who show up for projects, people who do projects. That's those are the people that I that I um, that I gravitate towards are are people who are operators, people who are doing things, and so I I look forward to the coverage that we're doing at Cinegear and Seagraph. But I also think that uh, I'm going to be jumping into the back end uh, soon in the next couple of weeks, whenever the whenever they can make space for me uh, on Saturdays and possibly some other days. I'm going to start jumping in and trying to do the edit uh, for the for the show and and figure out how to do the graphics. I realized that I don't know how to do those things. I was describing how it works at NAB. And I was like, I haven't actually done it myself, which I'm a little embarrassed by. So um, so anyway, so I'm going to try to catch up with this incredible team uh, to uh, to put that together. So stay tuned for that. Um, we'll see. I'll probably make a lot of mistakes. Um, and, uh, and of course, thanks to the producers uh, for all the great questions and keeping this show going uh, every day. We can't do this. We can't, we can't do it without the panelists. We can't do it without the production team, the production team before and after and during the show, as well as the panelists uh, and as well as the producers producers asking those questions. So thank you all for your contribution. We traveled 81,000 miles, 130,000 kilometers, 644 million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into after hours.
Justin. <laughs> yeah.